0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult R X podcast. And uh we're back at you today. Not a credited episode, yeah. but we're doing a patient case episode.
1: We are. I think it's been a while since we did a patient case.
0: I think so too.
1: Months probably.
0: Probably. Plus we didn't come up with a subject and you
1: know to talk about tonight and quick enough. Mm-hmm. So I was
0: like, well, I had a pretty interesting patient case. Let's, Let's do this. Just do a patient case that combines all sorts of stuff. all subjects. kinds of stuff. It's, like, it's considered this like your review. Yeah, all right. And also a practical In a free day for us. But right. uh, yeah, so um, getting things started off, we'll do a patient case. Um, how's uh, we? I don't think we've just checked in like in a while. How you, how's everything going on your end, man, with work and everything?
1: Good, just cruising. You know, my uh, still liking it. Yeah, yeah. My kid turns two in a few months. Whew. That's crazy. crazy. I know. When are we gonna have him
0: on here? Oh, yeah, he, let's he get his come on. let's get his thoughts on.
1: Get his two word uh yeah, he can say thank uh, you. A tenal all says choo choo a lot. Does he? For his train enough. set good enough. Yeah. Yeah, guy gave us like a um train set basically for well not basically for free. We went and picked it up like uh it was nice too. Like
0: a like remote control one no, or no, like no. one that you just yeah, attach
1: attached together the whole That's table cool. with the set and everything. Sweet. It's very nice of him. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. How about you?
0: can't complain man still trying to it's such a difference like with this new job that i'm doing doing like more critical it's like critical care management like ambulatory care mixed in but there's because the chronic care part is there it's a lot of documentation way more than i'm used to you know i'm not a big documenter
1: for like insurance purposes well
0: just like how we have to bill for it um and like what you have to like capture as far as the claim it's just like a lot of and they have we have software that we kind of plug in the information to it so it makes it as easy as a you know not as easy as it probably could be, but easier than it would be if Somebody you were thought about it and sure. tried to make it streamlined. Yeah, lots of templates and stuff, but yeah. definitely still a, a learning curve for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to just typing my own <laughs> quick stuff over at the FQHC world. and just well, being Was like, it pretty Good much freehand for the most part? Well, I mean, we could use templates and stuff, but it wasn't like I didn't have set things mm-hmm. that you I had needed to, to do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it was just a lot less strict. Yeah. But it's all good. Yeah, enjoying it. Can't complain. My, my son's almost one, which is nuts. Nuts. Crazy. He's gotten four or five teeth coming in the top right now.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. Ugh.
0: They're they're cut through already, so he stopped the the crying stuff. Okay. But he'll keep uh he keeps bumping his mouth on like yeah. the coffee table or something because he's trying to like teeth on it and yeah. he just loses his balance. And I'm like, oh, okay.
1: All of Nathan's the front part of his crib is just chewed up, <laughs> like a. Uh, You know, like a rodent, just like... (laughs) Like a rodent. (laughs) Even our coffee table. I was talking about our coffee table earlier. Resell value. Just huge bite marks all around the coffee table. He just loves biting wood. Just When he was teething, that's what he did. Mm. Just like, we're grabbing, just like, jump down as hard as he could. Can
0: you imagine, like, your teeth hurt that bad that you're like, I
1: I just got to chew some wood. This will make me feel way better. Just got to bite down on something really hard. (laughs)
0: Anything that will make me feel better. Let, (laughs) Let me chew on wood. Just a
1: very satisfying feeling.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. All right, so let's jump into this patient case, and uh, I gotta figure. I guess we can put it on the website, but um, I'll uh, switch over. If you guys are watching the video version, I'll switch over to. So you can at least read it on the screen. Yeah. But uh, 57-year-old male patient, sickle cell disease, um, reduced ejection fraction heart failure, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypertension, primary open-angle glaucoma, dry eye disease, constipation, GERD, and obstructive sleep apnea. (gasps) Comes to your clinic to establish care. Uh, His primary concern today is the number of sickle cell crises that he's been experiencing. Um, He's had three ER visits in the last five months. Um, He is uh, having significant constipation daily due to his maintenance opioid regimen. He also reports difficulty controlling his blood glucose. Um, He's experienced six hypoglycemic events, and uh, the the hypoglycemia has ranged between um, 65 on the higher end down to as low as 42 And he's confused as to what he's doing wrong because he feels like he's trying to watch what he eats and keep pretty good track of his diet and all that. So he's he's a little bit frustrated with his blood sugar. Um, He's also concerned that uh, he's having vivid nightmares almost every night. He he says that they're like disturbing, but it doesn't like keep him from wanting to like go to sleep. And he doesn't have any sort of like at least that he can remember any kind of trauma or any like thing that would indicate like a. PTSD
1: workup or anything like that. I had a nightmare last night. Did you? Yeah. Well, sometimes you have one and you wake up and like I don't know. It's kind of jarring, you know. I didn't want to go back to sleep. Really? Yeah. I did not like. It was unpleasant. Mm, yeah. It's not good. That's well, why I'm, I'm commiserating with the. Yeah. Mother. Imagine that. Just
0: every. night. Well, I asked him if it's if it's bothersome and and you know if it's something that actually causes him anxiety. And he's like, nah. He's like, ah, it's they're pretty creepy dreams, but I just get over it. I was like, right on, man. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, um, he also asked about uh, an artificial tear because he's been using the Refresh Optive, which is a carboxy cellulose based product, and um, it doesn't seem to be working anymore. And uh, it's a little, you know, just wants a recommendation on that. So lots to unpack. Oh, and, and I didn't have this in here, but just to, for reference... Um, the patient does have GERD and then it was, we'll get shown the meds he's on Nexium twice a day and Famotidine, and still having horrible reflux and regurgitation yeah. and bloating almost daily. And, uh, is very frustrated about that as well. So rough, rough, uh, situation.
1: I'm sure his constipation isn't helpful for the bloating. And yeah, that's sort of thing, for sure. Yeah. Um, let me go through some of the, meds? yeah, yeah, go through the med so, so there's a number of them. I'll try to group them a bit. Um, so he has a number of blood pressure and, um, Uh, And um, diuretics, but Losartan, 100 milligrams a day. Atenolol, 50 milligrams a day. Torsamide, 20 milligrams, four times a day, notably. Um, Metolazone, 2.5 milligrams, two times per week. And then amlodipine, 5 milligrams per day. So we'll go through those and see what we can look into optimizing further. But um, he also has some um, lipid-lowering therapies, simvastatin, 40 milligrams a day. Phenofibrate, 160 milligrams a day. Um, He's on an interesting insulin regimen, Lantus, 40 units, twice daily, as well as Humalog. And the way they have the Humalog written is five units with meals, but only if his pre-meal blood glucose is over 150. So we'll talk about that. Um, Metformin, ER, 500 milligrams twice a day. Um, And then a few other uh, miscellaneous things related to his other comorbidities, hydroxyuria, 500 milligrams, two capsules daily, but he admits to being um, somewhat non-adherent with that. Uh, Mike mentioned um, the latanoprost that he uses nightly, um, Nexium, 40 milligrams twice a day, as well as famotidine, 40 milligrams a day. And then um, he's on the opioids, like Mike mentioned, Oxycontin and Oxycodone. And then for the constipation, he uses Miralaxin, Bisicoidal.
0: Yeah. Um, You can see from the uh, vitals here that the blood pressure today was 165 over 89, heart rate is 82, sodium 137, potassium 3.6, glucose was 253, and uh, it was about two hours after he had eaten a light lunch when he had the blood drawn. Um, EGFR was 95, calcium 8.9, magnesium 1.9. And lipid profile, um, LDL was at 99, uh, HDL 49. The triglycerides are up a little bit at 242. And uh, he has had an echo with an injection fraction within the last couple months that was at 32%. And uh, his B-type natriuretic peptide, so his BMP, was 56.2 at the same around the same time as his, as his echo. Um, his vitamin B12 level uh, was also checked somewhat recently, and it was at thir- 367. Hemoglobin was a 7.2, hematocrit 20.8, MCV 98.6. He did receive a blood transfusion about two weeks ago when he was in the ER, and so his ferritin level was um, 1,491.6 after
1: the infusion. Gotcha. So there's a number of things. Um, Of course, like we usually do, we'll talk about a couple of the primary things with a couple things that we might could address at this current visit. But we're going to talk pretty holistically about what we think we can optimize over time. Most of this wouldn't happen uh, in the short term. It would be a number of visits before we could mm-hmm. get things optimized like we want to. Right? Yeah,
0: and ideally, obviously, we would want this patient seeing multiple specialists and things, which I, and that's part of the problem is the follow-up is not always all that great.
1: Yeah, with specialists, at best, you're going to be seen every six months, probably... Right. Once a year. And then you miss the follow-up and it's like it sets you back that much. Right. I had a dermatology appointment scheduled. It was my yearly follow-up. I think it was uh, in May. So it would have been a year previous, the previous May. And then it got canceled and rescheduled for the following November. And then that, and I I wouldn't miss appointments. It just got canceled. Then that Mm -hmm. one got canceled and it got rescheduled for, um, I think like the following May, so we came up on it, it was like coming, so it did two years, and then they got that one got canceled and they didn't reschedule. So I called to reschedule, and then I can't be seen until like November again. So,
0: well, um, how can they just cancel your appointment? <sighs> I don't know, I don't know. Like, hey, I hope you don't have, I mean, I get skin cancer checked out. I or tried something.
1: to, I try to, you know, be like commiserate with them because my spouse is yeah. a provider, and some days she has, you know, if Nathan is sick, yeah, or yeah, whatever, I mean, she got, sure. got to cancel the clinic, yeah, so maybe, but they were being canceled like far in advance like a month or two ahead and then but it wasn't like they could cancel that one and reschedule it for like the next day yeah it that's like so weird months and months and months yeah. down the road i was so like what huh? if you
0: had like an emergency i
1: know and is like constantly looking at the spot on my leg and being like you need to get that checked out i'm like i'm trying like, aren't you a
0: provider check it out <laughs> know, please
1: right.
0: use your diagnostic Don't abilities you know
1: everything <laughs> you need to look at this mole come
0: on your pa is supposed to know all about every specialty <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure uh that's 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 frustrating. Anyway, so wait that long. And is, so that's kind of what this person. Right, is in, you in, can
1: see where if you got started on something and yeah. maybe things change. You know, you can interact on the patient portal and that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. it, it can be difficult, especially with specialists. To yeah, which is why the the internal med primary care providers kind of supposed to be there to help facilitate things and keep it all kind of together. Yeah, uh, you know.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. So when we're thinking along the lines of, um, heart failure, since we'll start, start at the top of the list, I guess, of the medications. Yeah. Um, I know he says chief complaint was sickle. So we'll get to that. Cause there's less to talk about. <laughs> um, but, uh, Cole kind of lumped all the blood pressure and, you know, diuretic medications together. And when we're thinking about hypertension, you know, we have our typical algorithm of wanting to utilize ACE or ARB, a calcium channel blocker, and, then an thiazide thiazide like diuretic. Usually, um, those three medications we try we try to optimize first before adding on other additional classes when the patient has concomitant heart failure that's where things sort of shift because now the heart failure sort of takes precedence over the primary hypertension right um we 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 do still want to control the hypertension and make sure the blood pressure is you know at goal of less than 130 or 80 but the Guideline-directed medical therapy is what we are kind of focusing on when it comes to heart failure, and right. so we know which medications can actually prolong life in that case, and so that's what we're going for.
1: Right. You make sure they're on the gold doses of those meds, and then if their blood pressure is still high, you then we address, can address it from there. Yeah.
0: So, uh, what do you want to start with, F-Ref. Um,
1: Yeah, I guess I'll. Um, so you could talk about losartan, but I'll just mention atenolol. We've talked about <laughs> atenolol many times in the past. Um, but, of course, we have um, three evidence-based beta blockers that have mortality data in HEFREF um, long-term, and that is um, um, metoprolol, succinate bisoprolol, and um, carvedilol.
0: Did you just totally forget all three of them? I, I literally page?
1: had them in my mind. And then I saw
0: your face. You're like, wait a minute. I just forgot everything.
1: I can't even tell you what I was about to say, but I think I was about to say, like, Dox's Ocean was about to pop out of my mouth. I'm oh, like, no. Why would I say the worst possible thing?
0: <laughs> give him give worse heart failure?
1: <laughs> give him the terrible thing. Um,
0: Atenolol is not on that list? That's weird.
1: So, Atenolol is not on that list. Um, as our old uh, professor uh, Word likes to say, Dr. Word, uh, he wouldn't give it to his dog. But. Um, yeah, so that would be... And
0: if you hate Atenolol too, you can you can get this Atenolol uh, and other trash available here. <laughs> nice. that, sh- that shirt's available on uh, our website. Nice.
1: Um, so yeah, that would probably be a, a, a change that we would make at some point.
0: Yeah, for sure. So the Losartan, you know, the 100 milligrams is technically like the labeled max dose as far as like hypertension. However, we do know that When 50 milligrams has been compared to 150 milligrams of Losartan, that uh, the 150 milligrams was um, superior as far as preventing negative outcomes. And so uh, that was the HEAL trial. So technically speaking, our target dose would be 150. Now, in a perfect world where this patient's insurance covers everything, um, we, ideally, especially since this, his uh, ejection fraction is still in the 30s, ideally, instead of just an ARB kind of by itself, we would like to use sacubitril and Velsartan, the Entresto combo. Yeah. Um, we know that compared to Enalapril, um, it does, you know, decrease hospitalization, increases um, lifespan and, and prevents cardiovascular mortality and so or at least lowers the risk of cardiovascular mortality, I should say. But uh, better option overall. Um, so that would be you know ideal if we could get a out, but if not, at least we know that we can, bring that dose up of the Losartin a little bit towards that target dose. And then like Cole said, um, with Atenolol, uh, we know that just in the realm of hypertension, even though it's a selective beta blocker, Atenolol, um, that meta-analysis that you've probably heard us talk about multiple times from 2004 in Lancet, uh, basically showing that compared to placebo, it didn't really improve outcomes or change outcomes. So it lowers blood pressure, but doesn't actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular mortality, MI, stroke, things like that. And uh, when it comes to comparing it to other antihypertensives, then it actually has been shown to increase the risk of harm, including cardiovascular death and stroke. And so it's just not a great option overall for hypertension, let alone in heart failure when we know we have three evidence-based beta blockers. And um, like Cole said, there's the three to choose from, and all three technically are okay. But in this case, where we know that we need to bring the blood pressure down further, and we're really just replacing one of our evidence-based beta blockers with the atenolol, um, carvedilol would probably be the best option in this case because it's going to have alpha and beta blocking properties. So you're getting that decrease in cardiac output from the uh, the uh, beta blocking properties. You get the um, reduction in systemic vascular resistance from the alpha blocking properties, and so you're going to get overall less uh, or more blood pressure lowering than you would with the metoprolol or bisoprolol.
1: Yeah, he's still floating around, like Mike said, 165 over 89 uh, for his current blood pressure, despite his current regimen. Um, but yeah, I'd imagine an increase in losartan, switching to a different beta blocker would bring it down significantly. Um, he's taking uh, a fair amount of diuretics. He's obviously had heart failure for... Um, a while. So generally speaking, when somebody's a new onset heart failure, they'd probably start with Lasix. um, And, you know, kind of depending on how significant their fluid retention is, they would use that as needed and kind of bump up and down the dose or kind of change around how they're dosing. So the fact that he's on torsemide, four tablets a day, and metolazone, two and a half tablets, two times a week, uh, means that he's probably been past that point uh, for a while. So um, there are a couple of other um, evidence-based therapies for HFrEF ref that can be considered um, spironolactone, aldosterone antagonist could be considered um, and that would drop his blood pressure significantly probably as well. Um, and then we'll talk about it with a diabetes section too, but an SGLT2 inhibitor is another option too. Right. Yep. And, uh,
0: so did you mention the, the 30 minute I didn't timing? talk about the dose. So as far as the metolazone as well, the, and I have read some somewhat recent literature that said that maybe this isn't as important as we, you know, once thought it was. However, if you're trying to optimize and like this guy's case, we're trying to limit, you know, the electrolyte wasting and all that good stuff. Um, you know, it's worth a shot. But if we're giving the metolazone mm-hmm. in order to sort of give a synergistic response, um, you know, enhance the response of the loop, uh, the loop diuretic. Then we would want to give the metolazone around 30 minutes prior to the dosing of the furosemide, so that it has. It, it does take longer for the metolazone to get absorbed, and um, then by the time the furosemide is there, and the metolazone's already activated. You know, the in the distal and proximal convoluted tubule, for that matter, and it's ready to shuttle some of those electrolytes back into the loop of Henle to allow the loop diuretic to work on him a little bit more. So um, 30 minutes prior to the loop diuretic dose, and uh, hopefully that will give him a little bit more bang for his buck. Right. And I'm going to switch over to my computer screen, if you're watching the video version, because the uh, this is the 2022 guidelines that we've talked about in a couple episodes. But um, you can see where they basically want all five of those classes that Cole was talking about kind of – right from its stage one. So as quickly as we can get them established on these medications and start titrating the dose up, um, that would be the the best option, you know, for the patient's longevity and overall well-being and all that. And so, you know, going back to the the medication list, you know, because he's on amlodipine, uh, we know that amlodipine doesn't really provide, you know, any sort of like outcome benefit when it comes to the heart failure aspect. Um, it'd be probably a good idea to swap that one out for spironolactone. Like Cole was starting to allude to and um, then the SGLT2 inhibitor may end up helping with both the diuresis aspect and um, from his blood sugar as well and uh, his kidneys are good now but um, with sickle cell disease and all that you know we do right. still want to protect the kidneys and, and whatnot as well so right. SGLT2 inhibitor
1: might come in clutch in this case. I would think so and while amlodipine isn't like contraindicated in heart failure right. like you wouldn't want to use other calcium channel blockers like non non-dihydric- yeah calcium channel blockers um, Especially if his blood pressure wasn't as high as it was, and he was having trouble tolerating the gold doses of the other medications, which he may once we get him on all of those, you definitely wouldn't want amlodipine on board because we don't have at the outcome data that we do with the. Yeah,
0: outcomes. and I think it was the praise two trial that um, showed that it, do- it doesn't improve outcomes, but it also doesn't improve or doesn't cause harm, like Cole was saying. So it, you'd save him. for a case of you have all of the evidence based medications. On board, optimize the dose as much as they can stand, and then the blood pressure is still high. Right. Then you could add
1: on amlodipine if you really needed to. Which, like we talked about before, is addressing the primary hypertension after you've addressed the HEFREF. Right. Yeah. So that would be, uh, it's a, lot of changes. it's a lot of
0: changes and that's just the heart
1: failure. That's just the heart failure. So
0: I, that's why Cole said at the beginning, like, this would definitely not be something we could do in one visit. And I mean, there's just no way because there'd be too much risk for side effect. This would be a long process to get this patient's regimen fixed. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we did a couple, uh, things at first visit and then it should be a quick follow-up to, to make sure we can keep, keep on track. Right. But, um, so, you know, the hypertensive meds have kind of, um, we, at least we got a game plan going. It's going to take a little bit to optimize those. But uh, what do you want to look at next?
1: Um, yeah, not necessarily the highest priority, even though his um, lipids are good. But just because it's next on the list, we could talk about the lipid lowering yeah. therapies. Um, so he's on simvastatin, 40 milligrams, at 160 milligrams daily. So uh, there's a number of things we can consider here. For one, amlodipine and simvastatin interact. Um, raising the simvastatin levels and increasing risk for side effects and that sort of thing. So we talked about how we probably will take him off of amlodipine, but still not ideal there. Um, maybe a better option is to consider um, a high-intensity statin. So he doesn't have a history of ASCVD from what I can tell, right? Um, I think his ASCVD risk is high enough, but, though, that it would warrant. And I didn't calculate an ASCVD risk on him, but it surely is very high considering all his comorbidities and his... Um, heart failure, resource factors, all that sort of thing. So high-intensity statin would probably be reasonable for him, and likely at some point he was started on phenifibrate because his triglycerides were high. Um, there's a couple of things that Mike was kind of talking about before on that, but one is that the, his um, volatile um, sugars, especially sugars being high, could be related to his um, triglycerides being high. Additionally, if we had him on high-intensity statin, it might bring his triglycerides down on its own, and we wouldn't have to have to vibrate on board necessarily
0: especially if we're gonna shoot for the adas lip like ldl goal recommendations mm-hmm. that have been updated recently
1: yeah
0: i mean this patient was is basically going to be at least less than 70 if not high enough risk to be less than 55 for yeah. his ldl and i think it was 90 something 99 so definitely some room to 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 move and you know stopping the phenofibrate, uh, I th- there was uh, I think it was the Accord Lipid trial where they added I believe it was phenofibrate to simvastatin and they didn't improve outcomes. So we already know that that you know combo is um, unless the triglycerides are above at least five hundred, sometimes some references resources say a thousand. Yeah, um, then we're not really helping too much of phenofibrate. So. Right. Um, like Cole said, a torva, and you know, we could you know jump right to eighty really um, if we needed to. If we're worried about you know the dose or him you know being worried about the dose going up so much, then forty because at least even though it's high intensity versus moderate, aesthetically it looks the same. Right. And uh, then if we still needed some lipid lowering on top of that, um, or some LDL lowering, triglyceride lowering, we could always uh, add a if we need to get the LDL a little bit lower. Um, if the LDL is good, the statins being tolerated and the triglycerides are the only thing that's elevated still, if it's between a 150 and 500, we know that there's data with icosapen ethyl, which is a purified form of fish oil from that reduce it trial. So we could add that potentially, um, it's like the only fish oil study that's showed Positive outcomes, so it's then it's not uh, Lavaza or any of the other um, omega three generic brands. It's got to be Visipa, which is icosapent specifically. Right, um, so that would be an option. We we now have uh, outcome data with bempedoic acid, um, nexletol. So. That's an option. Yeah. PCSK9 inhibitors. We got a lot of uh, things to choose from that are better than phenofibrate.
1: Yes, So for sure. I don't know if this guy would you know, fall under the PCSK9 category. Probably not. Given that his LDL seems to be responding pretty well <laughs> to the statin, it just could use a little more lowering. But if he was secondary prevention or if his LDL was... Remaining high despite high intensity statin. He might pop in there for that. Plus, we don't know how high those
0: Simba concentrations were with that in pain. That's true. But they might have been like taking simva 120. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's,
1: yeah.
0: it's responding, but I'm real achy. Yeah, I know. it's
1: responding, but have I you literally were, can't stand if up out of it. If you've ever
0: gone to the restroom, have you ever had like urine that looks like Coca Cola?
1: <laughs> that's normal, right? That's, when, that means you've been drinking. That, I've just been drinking too much Coke. I've been
0: drinking too much Coca Cola. Too much Coke Zero. Yeah, it's one of my A1Cs best. <laughs> up. All right, so we got a plan for the, the statins. Yeah. Um, and obviously,
1: not high at all on the priority list at yeah. the moment probably like fourth.
0: Or fourth. Nonsense. Yeah. Keep the Atenolol. Change the stat. Right. But uh, yeah no, definitely a plan for that one and um, actually one of the things we did end up changing because we were trying to simplify the regimen and so Simba and Fino combined to give a tour of 40 is what we ended up going with. Yeah just no. for,
1: I think as far as changes go yeah. even if it's a, an additional change removing something or simplifying oh, something yeah. is something that you can, you can do a lot that. of that <laughs> within a single visit. It's just the adding on that um, that that you have to do. Over people don't visits.
0: people don't like all the, all the adding on. Yeah, they they like like adding taking. On. They're all about taking away. But there's the you know, there's part. a lot of
1: providers who don't like adding a lot of things on at the yeah. same time either because if there's a side effect or if there's an issue, ugh, we don't know which one it was. Right. Maybe a hundred
0: percent for sure. And. Uh, So that takes us to diabetes, which is something that's been frustrating him, uh, and and he's a little bit...
1: uh, Higher on the priority list.
0: Higher on the priority list, and he's just confused as to why he's putting so much time and effort into his diet and all that, but not getting the results, having hypoglycemia, definitely concerned about that. And the the time of day that the hypoglycemia is happening doesn't seem to be like predictable. Um, he's been trying to eat steady meals. He doesn't skip meals. And uh, so th- the first thing that kind of struck struck me was the fact that he's on two doses of basal insulin a day, plus three doses potentially of prandial insulin. Yep. Um, and then metformin, uh, which is, is good. We know that metformin, if a patient's on insulin, we add metformin that decreases the you know total daily
1: insulin requirement
0: burden. of yeah, insulin burden. And um, it also can cut down on, um, major cardiovascular events it can cut down on the weight gain you see um, from uh, the, the insulin you know long term it can even lower it obviously helps your body to utilize that you know exogenous insulin better so it makes you more insulin sensitive so um, what was it, the new guideline that didn't
1: um, say metformin for everybody ada that was ada mm-hmm. yeah.
0: so i mean really this patient should have been on an sglt2 inhibitor first off and then i would have wanted to, to go with a um, GLP-1 GLP one. One, yeah. um, before jumping to prandial insulin. Yeah. Um, but Which I bef-
1: guess, historically, were you able to see if you had done any of that stuff? No. Before? it was, yeah.
0: And I don't know if they were just worried about insurance covering it or what the case was, but yeah. um, you know, the first thing that caught my mind, though, was the basal dose, yeah. because um, this patient is basically getting 40 units twice a day of basal, and then, like maybe 10 units total of prandial insulin. Yeah. So that's not a great <laughs> ratio um for someone who's been established on insulin for a while. Um A1C is is not quite controlled and because the patient is uh having hypoglycemia that obviously raises
1: concerns as well. As glucose today was 253. Yeah, oh,
0: yeah. and I don't even go. think I included the A1C, but it was a, it was a 8.5 okay. basically. Um and so uh with that being said, um I think we've talked. We talked about overbasalization. Sometime, at least once. Yeah. So, the the thought of like just continuously going up on basal insulin is a little bit skewed. Like, the more you go up on the basal insulin, the 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 higher you go up, the less impact those additional units will make because you eventually get like this plateau effect, Mm -hmm. to where eventually you can get to the point where you're you're causing overbasalization and you could potentially just worsen the patient's overall blood glucose control because you're just given too much basal insulin. Um, It's something that I feel like ever since I started like, like thinking along those lines of over basalation have to talk to the endocrinologist that one time a while ago. And I feel like I've noticed it so much now that it happens all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, if you think about how we learn, yeah, insulin just keep regimen. titrating it's up. Just, oh, blood sugar still high? Yeah. Keep titrating. Yeah, we don't know. There's a calculation. Oh, calculation. Keep titrating. Yeah. It doesn't come up. Yeah. And, but if you think, it's not really natural. You know, it doesn't follow a natural insulin release rhythm that the body mm-hmm. gives just to have a whole bunch of basalins and basalins going insulin going all the time and not the spikes with like... Um, food and mm-hmm. glucose and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it does make sense, but it's not something that I was ever really yeah. talked to about.
0: For sure. And um, I switched over. If you go watch in the video so you can see the, this is an excerpt from the
1: ADA guidelines
0: that talks about over basalization. So they're, they're basically saying that um, if the basal dose is more than 0.5 units per kilogram per day, um, if they're having elevated bedtime or morning and/or post or preprandial differential hypoglycemia or high variability, which this patient is having a lot of those things, um, you they may be you know at risk for overbasalization. So I calculated the units per kilogram per day, and it was basically one unit per kilogram per day. Nice. So it's twice as twice. much. And 0.5 is being a little generous too, because I've seen some resources that say 0.3 and higher is mm-hmm. overbasalization. So, he's getting way too much basal insulin, way, way, way too much, and not enough prandial coverage, or at least not, you know, using it properly. Right. So, with the first thing I would do is back down, way down on the basal dose. Probably, if it's on 40 units twice a day, I would probably, you, you could realistically get away with probably like, 25 units twice a day at first and then maybe even less yeah um in fact that the one endocrinologist that first kind of like was talking to me about this in depth was like if they're on 80 90 units in Atlantis, i'll just cut it in half um like right away and like they'll get better yeah and so i thought that was kind of interesting but um i haven't had the uh the stomach to do just to cut (laughs) it in half yet
1: but um, (laughs) you'd have to be like yes you uh, might have to use a lot more humalog for the next few days i really hope i did the
0: math right Right. this (laughs) This endocrinologist seemed like a real straight shooter (laughs) But, uh, you know, that would be the first thing I would address is back that down. And then as long as there's no contraindication to him having uh, a GLP-1, I would probably try to utilize that over the basal or the uh, prandial insulin anyway. Yeah, maybe or his
1: triglycerides were high in the past and somebody got nervous about that. Pancreatitis, pancreatitis or something. Pancreatitis, but, I mean, along with the steps we've talked about, I don't think we could probably take away that concern. Yeah.
0: Um, with the GERD, I, the only thing I would be worried about a little bit is the if there's any sort of like... Um, um, gastroparesis yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, diabetes has been not crazy uncontrolled, but he's had diabetes for a while. So that could be an issue. And also if there's any sort of like concern, I guess, you know, if they're not producing insulin anymore, there's always that risk of, you know, I did look and see if there was a C peptide or any of the auto antibodies like the GAD 65 or IA2 um, and islet autoantibodies, auto antibodies and didn't see any of that stuff. So I think it was really just a matter of, and he, he, he couldn't tell me if they'd ever, you know, he'd never heard of like the once a week options or anything. So decreasing the basal dose, you can keep the metformin, um, but really, if, if the, if, One of the options to get rid of the metformin would make it more him more willing to to use the SGLT two inhibitor or something like that. I would definitely swap them out if necessary. Metformin, yeah, is not what I'm worried about. And then I would try to use the GLP one or the um, tirzepatide, the GLP GIP, Mm -hmm. uh, if that's possible. Which probably would have to use the GLP one first for insurance purposes. But uh, just really watching the the basal. Um, dose in in patients if, if they're even if they're only on basal insulin you still don't want to over basalize the patient. The other thing is with the way that his dosing is set up for the prandial you know dose you know per meal if the patient's blood sugar is above one fifty going into the meal then he takes his like base you know set of units for the meal that's going to cover the meal itself but that's not going to correct his right. blood sugar that's already high. Right. So really it should be his set you know, units for the meal plus a sliding scale that maybe goes up one additional unit for every 50 milligrams uh, per deciliter of blood sugar that it's, it is above, you know, what we would consider fasting, appropriate fasting blood sugar. Um, that would be a way of doing the prandial insulin. But I think that's a lot of moving parts that would be a lot easier if we just did GIP,
1: or GLP. Yes. And called it a day. Right. Nothing necessarily wrong with prandial insulin. Yeah. No, it's, it's a strange... I mean, I imagine the... Reasoning is to per- lower risk of hypoglycemia, which he has had six events, um, mm-hmm. um, being pretty low. Lives by himself. Lives by himself. So, so I mean, yeah, there's concerns there, but um, yeah, it seems like the better option would be to try to attack the the postprandial with the GLP. Yeah,
0: and if if we had to use insulin in this patient, like in a more strict insulin regimen, than getting him on a continuous glucose monitor that has like alarm systems and stuff. Yeah. Did I tell you we we would? I did. We did some diabetes training thing at work and uh they gave us libres to put on so i, I was wearing mine and me and jen were trying to see whose blood sugar was better but then i forgot to like turn it off when i went to sleep at night and so my blood sugar hit like 68 69 which i, I mean i felt fine i was sleeping and uh and it was going off and i was like getting so mad because i could not <laughs> tell what the stupid alarm was and yeah. i was like trying to make it i thought it was my phone alarm uh-huh. and so i'd hit it in like every 10 minutes and Finally, I was just, I was so mad it I was just making a joke because I was just trying to, because Jim's frustrated. because so we couldn't figure out why it was going off. And I was like, oh, no. She's like, what? I said, I'm hypoglycemic.
1: <laughs> I was like, do something.
0: She's uh, like, it is too early for this. But you can customize
1: them too, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have a, well, I, I know somebody who, um, who said it to be, Kind of dangerously low, like kind of concerning. Do
0: not tell me unless it's thirty, right?
1: She <laughs> like, "It <she's> like, <laughs> it's low. Don't tell me." I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You can definitely do it to where, um, to what suits you, I suppose. Yeah, but, um, but still, so they would call that like what an unaware hypoglycemic event if it was below to wake the you threshold up, yeah. and. Um, Plus, yeah. if we're going to switch
0: into Carvadololol, that's going to potentially mask a lot of those symptoms of yes. hypoglycemia. So, so it,
1: I mean, it is a very helpful thing. And I'm, I think I saw that there's a new version of the freestyle coming Yeah, out three. Something.
0: I guess yeah. the four is on its way, too, apparently. But the and three I don't know is
1: what they're really going to change. But. The three,
0: I think, is actually a lot smaller and easier to use. But the, um, the Dexcom G7 also came out, and now you don't have to have yeah, the G7. The uh, three different pieces back to two pieces like the uh, Libre. And I think it nice. goes in the arm again, too. Is this this G6, I think, stuck in the stomach, which yeah. seemed a little uncomfortable?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and, and you can get those approved with, you know, volatile blood sugars and stuff. Mm-hmm these yeah. days if you have a
0: patient yeah. on this insulin regimen yeah. even if they're medicare like this patient was um you can if you go there's a, a full sheet on dexcom's website that's the medicare
1: approval yeah. sheet that you can utilize yeah so, and you might run into high cost shares or something like that with medicare plans but it's definitely something to yeah pursue. there's ways to get to do it
0: yeah it's it's it, unless you're like in a retail setting it's going to be a lot harder you really right. need to be in a clinic setting you're in to a get, clinic get all the setting,
1: paperwork you have done su- have some support staff or you can do it yourself then, yeah um, that it's, it's doable. I am my support. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding,
0: that's not true. Um, all right, so um, we'll, we'll save the I guess we'll save the sickle cell for last, but sure. um, the patient's also on a crazy amount of uh, acid reducing agents. Yes um, Esomeprazole, 40 milligrams twice a day, Famotidine, 40 milligrams daily still having tons of reflux. So asked him how he was taking the Nexium, taking the evening dose uh, at bedtime, going to sleep, taking the uh, morning dose first thing in the morning. Doesn't uh, eat breakfast until about two or three hours later. Um, basically, peeing it all out. Basically, not getting any of the dose. So, if you remember, yes, the on the box on the OTC product for Nexium, it says twenty-four hour relief and all that good stuff. That's partly true. It's it's true in a way it, from a certain point of view. <laughs> And uh, basically saying that if the medication gets to where it needs to go, in other words, it gets to the ATPase pump that's pumping that you know, acid in the stomach and making it more of an acidic environment, if it gets there, it shuts that pump off, then yes, it takes your body a whole 24 hours in order to make new pumps. If the pump is not turned on and, and activated to actually start releasing that acid, the PPI is not able to bind to it nearly as, you know, with the same affinity. And so if the patient doesn't eat you know, for three hours after or takes it at bedtime, and doesn't eat till the morning, the half-life of a PPI is only an hour. And so, you know, the, the medication is for the most part gone out of the system by the time he's actually eating a meal. And so it's not really getting much benefit out of the PPI despite taking it
1: twice a day. Generally speaking, how do you feel about the, the twice a day thing? I, I try to be more open to it and say like, well, you know, maybe it, it could capture some pumps that weren't captured with the mm. first dose. But
0: um, I, I think if there's like any issue, obviously if there's, a, if there's been an ulcer, like you're healing an H. pylori infection, something like that, any kind of like peptic ulcer, you're going to do twice a day for right. just mucosal healing. Yeah. Um, I would say usually in most cases like this one, Doing it twice a day is probably unnecessary because it, if you switch and take the medication correctly, thirty minutes to an hour before a full meal, um, you probably wouldn't need. And then what if they said
1: like they did that? It's still not working. Then, job. then
0: I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not one of the people that wants to die on the hill of right. PPIs. Yeah. Like, there's some people that are like that's some their people, life's mission of like getting people off yeah. of
1: PPIs. Like,
0: I'm like, I, like, you can keep smoking, but you've got to get off this PPI. Right. Like <laughs> that like,
1: people, like I, I remember there was a pharmacist who, every time that I, I worked with a little bit, yeah. that every time someone would pick up a PPI, he'd oh, say, he'd, You know, that's going to kill you, right? Yeah.
0: It's like, yeah. hey, maybe you shouldn't say that to every customer. <laughs> but I don't know. I just, I, I know there's risks associated with them, but I've, I feel like, you know, if someone's if someone's having bad enough, you yeah. know, heartburn to what's, just decreasing their quality of life. It needs to be a discussion with with them. Right. And they're over the counter for you know. Right. If, they, if you even if you're not going to prescribe it to them, they can just go get it they're anyway. Get it. So, yeah. um, and then with famotidine, it does have you know better PRN type you know usage uh, because it's gonna it's gonna work you know pretty quickly and gives give them some relief. But he's still having to use this every day. Which if the simeprazole was working appropriately, technically speaking, the famotidine probably wouldn't be much benefit at that point because it's kind of eventually targeting Granted, it's targeting further up the the path, if you will, this the signal path. But it's eventually getting to that ATPase pump anyway. And so, if it's already been shut down, then fumarin is not really helping all that much. Right. Now, in this case, the fumarin is probably the only thing that's really <laughs> really helping because the s SALT dose is not there. Um, except there is really you know a higher prevalence of tachyphylaxis with H two blockers. And so, at this point, he's been on the fumarin for years. So I, I would. Bet uh, there's probably not getting much yeah. um, benefit. Um, plus, started mentioning that uh, he's having neuropathy um, at this point, and he's attributing it to his diabetes. Um, and, and even was saying that it's getting bad enough to where he was going to ask about something like gabapentin or what have you last time they checked a B12 level, which was six something months ago, Mm -hmm. uh, it was was in the normal range, but on the lower side of normal. Um, Metformin, we know, can decrease intrinsic factor, which can decrease the absorption of B12. We know that um, hydroxyurea can decrease B12. We know that uh, esomeprazole can decrease vitamin B12. Fomotidine, to some extent, can as well. And so, he's got a lot of medications working against him uh, when it comes to vitamin B12 absorption. And so, so it would probably be a good idea, especially if he's having you know neuropathy type symptoms. That's one of the ways that it, you know, B, low B twelve uh, levels will kind of manifest from a symptom standpoint. And so, the, getting um, sublingual B twelve supplementation would probably be a good option. Yeah, and making sure it's sublingual because if you just take an oral tablet, you're in the same right in the same uh, problems. But uh, yeah, so as far as the PPI goes, the uh, the switch that we made was actually stopping the ASM altogether and giving Dexalon. Um, Dexalon, Dexlansoprazole, is uh, the only PPI that doesn't have to be timed in relation to the, the meal. It combines to the pumps regardless of whether they're, they're active or inactive. Um, so I will say I used to think that Dexalon was like a big kind of just you know, a me too drug that was like super expensive, but I have had so much success with switching people off traditional PPIs now over to Dexalon. It's like not even funny. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm a Dexelant fan. great. I mean, I'm a Dexelant
1: fan. GERD is one of those things that affects people's quality of life. Oh, pretty for sure. That it's like one of those things that everybody has, so you discount it a bit, but like, man, it is, as I get older and experience acid reflux oh, a yeah. little more, it's like, gosh, it's terrible. Well,
0: then you tell people, oh, just stop eating the foods you like. Right.
1: It's like, okay, well, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Right. So I'm going to
0: have chicken wings still, and I'm going to yeah. be miserable for I'm two gonna, days. I'm going to eat
1: my spicy tacos. Yeah. and Yeah. So now I got
0: Dexal in my corner. Right. <laughs> I'm ready right. to go. All right. So you mentioned the opioids that the patient's taking for for pain control. Uh, on a pretty strict opioid regimen with Oxycontin and oxycodone uh, daily. But we know that besides you know the other. Concerns we have with with opioids long term and you know having Narcan available and all that good stuff. Uh, it also can cause really bad constipation.
1: You know, so opioid induced constipation. It, do you know if his opioids were related to like some certain pain? Or it, it was the cell? Cell. Okay, Yeah, because yeah. it's constant. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah.
0: And uh, he'll get more like deluded in some of these IVs if he's going in through right. a crisis. But he's on oral meds at home.
1: Right. So this is this is different than a, a regular chronic pain situation right. that we might be talking about. I told him just take CBD and get over (laughs) it. I'm just just kidding.
0: Um, No, but uh, in this case, it is extremely painful for these patients. So they are taking opioids chronically, which means they're having constipation chronically. So there are a few different options. Um, There's like the uh, Movantic and some of the traditional uh, medications that are indicated for uh, opioid-induced constipation where you're blocking the opioid receptors in the the GI tract but not the others in the CNS or whatnot. And so those are potentially, you know, we can go that route. I am actually a big fan of Linzess. I know we've talked about that a lot with um, IBS, uh, but Linzess is not technically approved for opioid-induced constipation. Um, I believe Ametiza does not have that indication, but Linzess doesn't, you know, have that indication, but it is oftentimes used off-label and it has good data specifically in opioid-induced constipation. So you still want to have a patient start off with usually stool softeners and some kind of stimulant laxative like bisacodyl and then this patient's taking miralax on top of it and so at this point they've been doing it you know twice a day every day for months and months and only having a bowel movement like once every 4 days so at this point S would be my next option because we want them to get you know regular and then that's two more meds we could potentially take off and they're not having to drink that liquid every day right so, it's, uh, again, it, it's, it's almost cost, you know, I'm fortunate because I work with a clinic that is also associated with a 340B pharmacy, and Linzess is one that you can get fairly cheap with 340B, so um, I'm gotten a little spoiled with that, but there's patient assistance programs and different options and things like that to get it, and I feel like a lot of insurance companies do cover it now, if, as long as you've tried some of the other things.
1: If it's off-label, it might be a little more difficult.
0: But... That's Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But just say they have constipated. Just, just lie on the ICD 10 codes. That's the way to do that. Yes. Yeah. You know, Fraud is definitely you know, best way to do like it. a crime.
1: Right? Like, like doing illegal things. <laughs>
0: like doing legal things, and then putting it in your podcast <laughs> and then getting arrested on podcast. Could you imagine that we, the SWAT ra- team just storms a my house in the middle for, of a podcast. For, for inappropriate ICD 10 codes? You used the wrong ICD 10. You said he was level two obesity. We're, He's level three. We're the Medicare police. <laughs> Gosh, that'd be scary. Yeah. That um, actually is kind of scary. Yeah. We have
1: to take those fraud, waste, and abuse things every year. Uh, you know? And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the penalties and fines are pretty significant. Oh, they're,
0: they're, yeah. It's like we, we might put you in jail for 25 like
1: years. I know. It's like
0: I could get less jail time if I just robbed a bank. Right.
1: Like you, um, like you
0: $500,000 you submit the wrong
1: ICD-10 codes to a commercial insurance they might just take the money back you do it to Medicare you're going to jail Yeah,
0: I, I like the ones that are like you can pay $10,000 fines or up to four years in jail yeah, like, I will pay the $10,000
1: right. <laughs> 4
0: years loan. that is I don't know what the dollar an hour ratio <laughs> is for jail but that's gotta be it's not good <laughs> I'm working overtime all right, so finishing up, um, he's on the Lutana Pros for the, the glaucoma. Intraocular pressure stabilized, all that's good. But he mentioned the fact that he is needing a new artificial tear because the Refresh Optive is no longer working. Um, I think we did a dry eye did. episode did, um, not too long ago, right? We did glaucoma. Yeah, but we did dry eye too, I thought. We might have. Maybe? I don't know. I know we've done one at some
1: point. I thought we did an episode that was like... You know, every time I think something was recent, I look back and it was like yeah, four years. Ago. I have
0: no concept of when we've done <laughs> anything. But uh, I'll switch back over to my computer so you can kind of see uh, if my, the picture will come see a up. Blank,
1: blank, cool screen. Yeah,
0: that was a cool background. <laughs> <laughs> and, but this, this diagram, this was in a, uh, a meta-analysis that was put together, um, it, it basically comparing all the different artificial. like drops that are options available over the counter because there's a million of them that you can just go down the ophthalmic uh, aisle at any pharmacy and you realize there's so many choices and so this just kind of gives you some ideas of which you know products which active ingredients are kind of like you know in their hierarchy of efficacy so to speak and so you can see that that um, refresh optive is is on the you know beginner side of this, this algorithm. And so if if they're having refractory symptoms, and and really, this is not saying you have to start over, you know, the starting point here on this algorithm, and then work your way around the, you know, the the picture. Um, Basically, just it's giving you a, a reference of what we would expect to be, you know, a stronger, more potent or more efficacious drop. So that if the patient is on something like hyaluronic acid, that you don't, backtrack and give them refresh optive since they're kind of in the same you know category you you'd escalate therapy so because he's on the refresh optive which is one of the starting you know options for patients who have never tried anything they're having if he's are having refractory symptoms then escalating to like sustain ultra which is a polyethylene glycol 400 base product or a, a soothe which is a um, propylene glycol glycerin combo suppo- um that's just suppository i meant uh I meant to eye drop. I don't know why it's a suppository. I mean I guess you could use it like that. It's not gonna probably
1: You could probably use the eye drop where the suppository goes, but the suppository where the eyedrop goes It's not gonna dissolve very well. That might be a problem. It, yeah.
0: It's gonna you're gonna have blurred vision. <laughs> But, uh, but so you could escalate from there, you know, and there's definitely nothing wrong with using the artificial tears. And, you know, you can even go up to where you're using the gel or even the ointments. Um, I will say the, the latanoprost, and it depends on how long he's, you know, he may have just had chronic dry eyes for a long period of time, but, uh, the latanoprost, the, the formulation has been around for a long time. It's got a generic version. Um, it does have a preservative in it, which we talked about when we covered glaucoma that, um, the clonium uh, chloride the uh, back and basically the longer you use that it can disrupt the kind of the surface tension in the eye and, and worsen dry eye disease over time and so it's something that uh, if the patient's going to be on this long term which in this you know glaucoma you are um, using a preservative free option would be ideal if possible um, and latanoprost, which I, I feel like we mentioned this but latanoprost does actually have a, a new, Somewhat new. It's not really that new anymore, but um, like six months ago, got approved for a preservative free formulation mm-hmm. under um, the name. I use a, I believe it's it's I Y U Z E H.
1: I use a, I use a, We use a, He uses. Whatever. We all use it
0: Yeah, and and so it's a, the first like preservative free formulation of Latanoprost. Um, they also have um, Travoprost that it has a different alternative to to back that might be a little bit less irritating in the eyes, and then the. So Prost is the one that comes as a uh, the Zioptan is the brand name. It comes as a single-use vial. um, So that would be another potential option. Now, if if he has other signs and symptoms of like more systemic autoimmune type situation, like, you know, uh, Chogren syndrome or something like that, then maybe, you know, we need to evaluate, you know, to see if Restasis or something is a better option. But it, it could be just from having the preservative day in you know, day out. So Could just be. something to at least have in the back of your mind. You kind of just threw it in there. That's, we like to call that the, uh, the show off recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> just a, just a little, just a little nugget. You at heard the end of there. chloride? Yeah. Well, let me tell you all about it. Me tell about Strap that. in. <laughs> You're about to be bored to death. <laughs>
1: um, so it's the last thing, the sickle cell.
0: Yeah. So the patient is already on hydroxyurea. We know that that's kind of ideally, you know, the, the first line option for preventing, um, the sickle cell crises. And the, the issue is the adherence, you know, it can cause a lot of GI issues, um, could be, you know, because he's got all of the issues with constipation and having the GERD and nausea sometimes, and it, it could definitely be something that uh, he, he's just kind of not wanting to take it because of the GI issues or other side effects. Um, in this case, when we talked more about it. He's like, I don't know, just because it's got so many, you know, it could have so many negative effects on the body as far as you know immunosuppressive and you know all those types of things you know he's like i don't want i don't want putting like poison in my body so we we talked about how it you know is actually decreasing all the 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 long-term complications of sickle cell including those pain crises because that was one of the things he brought up of he doesn't understand why he's having them so often um and really then after we start talking about that he's like well actually the you know my primary physician that handles my sickle cell was, was actually wanting me to go to three capsules a day and I had refused and I'm like and then how long, like, so long after that did you have a crisis and he was like, eh, like within the same month and I was like eh. yeah. so you know we, we talked a along about that and he said he's going to try to be more adherent and see how it goes um, but you know the other issue is having to get transfusions iron infusions you know things like that with uh, the hemoglobin dropping so low um, it's it, the hydroxyurea will definitely help reduce the risk of of sickle cell anemia, um, but there's also some potentially other options we could at least look at um, from a strictly anemia standpoint. We have the Oxyburida, um which is the uh, voxlator and it's it's it was approved in 2019, but it is is basically there to add on to hydroxyurea um, to reduce the risk of anemia or hemolysis it doesn't actually at least from a statistical standpoint it doesn't reduce the risk of acute pain crises but it does reduce the risk of anemia and hemolysis which this patient is dealing with and it for, has been dealing with for a while so that would be a potential add-on option um, which actually I brought up and they're like yeah actually they wanted me to take that one but I didn't want to it and I was like nailed it <laughs> even though the patient still didn't want to take it I was like well at least I knew what to do knew what it was. <laughs> I'm new to this whole sickle cell thing <laughs> But, uh, you know, that would be an option for the anemia aspect. Now, if the hydroxyurea has been, you know, maxed out as far as what the patient can tolerate and, you know, if we safely can administer to them, then we also do have a couple other options potentially. Um, we could add on the L-glutamine, the Endari, uh, that's been shown to, um, you know, reduce the, the risk of, you um, you know, sickle cell crises and whatnot and and improve, you know, outcomes, but it can also cause constipation and other GI issues. So there's, there's that. And then if, which we don't currently have it set up at our practice for adults, but um, if we get that eventually we can do the infusions as well with the um, chrysalizumab is another potential add-on or monotherapy instead of hydroxyurea for patients who can't tolerate it. What was his hesitancy about hydroxyurea again? He just, just because it's you know, if you read through like all the monitoring parameters and you know, I mean, it is a, it's not like a mild right. drug. I think it was just looking at the box warning. Or I anything. just thought it was
1: interesting that he, he, I guess he didn't really express non-adherence with anything but that. Uh, yeah,
0: it was well, it was just because that was the one in particular that I'm like, I really honed in on the because I've just the the few sickle cell patients that I've seen so far at this new gig, uh, I feel like have been really resistant to hydroxyria, So I just asked a little bit more
1: to figure out yeah, kind of why and yeah, yeah. they're thinking around it. Yeah.
0: So, um, but I think it has to do with a lot of, but plus it's like, you know, when they're talking to other people that they know that have tried it or, right. you know, then they get a bunch of information and it's usually negative. And I would think
1: a great motivator would be not having an acute, which I guess it doesn't, well, I guess it does some, but the pain crises I feel like would be like a, yeah. a motivator. You know, it's yeah, not sure. like hypertension or well, something that's a little more silent. Like and, it's very practical.
0: And hydroxyurea is one of the only ones that really decreases those uh, occurrence of pain, those pain crises by a pretty significant,
1: you know, rate.
0: Yeah. So um, definitely encouraged him to go to that. And then I, I told him to take another um, look at the expirator that the physician wanted him to be on and talked to him about maybe not having to get as many transfusions and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, the last thing um, with this patient that we'll mention just to wrap up, because I know we've been going for like almost an hour now, but uh, the the last thing is is the dreams, which I thought was really interesting. And I actually I was kind of like racking my brain a little bit as you was telling me that because there's no trauma, there was no PTSD, there's no anxiety at night, there's no the drink. He can remember the dreams always, and like they just seem very vivid. And I was thinking about it for a little bit, and then I finally started asking about his CPAP. Um, because I asked him how often he's using it. Is it comfortable? And he's like, eh, I hate that thing. I, I, I use it for like 30 minutes, maybe a night. And he goes, oh, I haven't used it in like a week. <laughs> I was like, Okay. So we went from 30 minutes, from went I'm always using it to 30 minutes a night to I haven't used it in a week. Yeah. So that probably means two months. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things that can happen is if you're not getting enough oxygen to the brain while you're sleeping or you have these episodes of hypoxia, you're putting the brain under stress. You're not able to get to those more, um, deep restorative, you know, states of sleep. And so that, when you are finally able to get into those states, either you're you're feening almost like for that restorative sleep and, and that's where those vivid dreams can come from. Um, or the stress, you know itself and the hypoxic event in the middle of the night while you're sleeping is, is kind of precipitating those those nightmare type vivid dreams, and uh, so I I double-checked myself before I actually said that to the patient because I wanted to make sure that was accurate. I felt like that was true, but I needed to double-check myself, and there's a lot of um, literature talking about um, inappropriate CPAP use or like non adherence to CPAP can cause nightmares and things, so I thought that was kind of interesting. so many
1: other benefits for this guy to use it, too, related to party bastard health and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, so many things. So yeah. we we had a long talk about CPAP and said if it's not if it doesn't fit right, then we need to get it re you know reevaluated with sleep medicine and have them look at it. But uh, there's definitely things you can do if you're not comfortable with the machine that you, know, you have. So lots and lots and lots to do. with This patient. This lots will be to a, do. this will be like every three weeks until we can get this crap situated for yeah. like months now. Wow. So yeah. I thought this was a good one though. I like this. Uh, a lot of a lot of moving
1: parts. Yeah, if you will, very interesting. Very <coughs> interesting.
0: Anything else uh, with this one?
1: No, I think you covered it. Um,
0: mm-hmm. You guys ought to let us know if you guys found anything differently, or uh, if you were to do anything differently. We'd like to hear that. We're 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 not really talking about this. this is more just my own head right now. But I'm. Uh, we got to come up with a way of doing some live cases too, yeah. so that people can like join us and stuff that'd be cool maybe we'll have to we'll, we'll brainstorm that yeah <laughs> but uh we'll get back to you guys when we come up with an idea um uh, but uh if if you do want um more patient cases let us know uh, maybe we can move them to patreon or something uh if you do want more lecture style uh you know content then check out the patreon it's, it's patreon.com slash core consult rx um we at least once a week if not more we're uploading um lectures and PowerPoint slides and practice questions and all kinds of stuff on there so um, check that out if you haven't already and for those of you who have subscribed I really appreciate that it helps us out a lot and uh, if you have any questions for Cole and myself uh, reach us in the emails or the social media um, handle it's in the, the show notes or the text messaging or the phone number you can text messages directly on and, uh, and any way you want to communicate we will do our best to respond in a somewhat timely fashion and um we appreciate you guys listening as always. Thanks for the support. We'll see you guys in the next one. Have a good.